Those elected to represent us in a democracy should be a faithful echo of our society. For that very reason, representation is imperative in a democracy. And every 10 years, census data is gathered and then used for redistricting or organizing political districts. This is done at every level of government, including counties. My guest today is tasked with this weighty endeavor. This is Voting Now, Turning Rights into Reality. We are a podcast series created by lawyers for everyone. We are produced by the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association and the Oregon Historical Society. Our goal is to tackle the sticky questions about democracy through the lens of voting access. Welcome to our new season. I'm Rachel Sauray, your host today for some good old-fashioned nerdy government access and accountability conversation. Joining me today is Multnomah County Auditor Jennifer McGurk. Prior to winning election in 2018, Jennifer worked in the auditor's office for six years. Before her auditing career, Jennifer wrote and managed grants at higher education institutions, including Lewis and Clark College and Portland State University. During her race to be Multnomah County's auditor, she received support from all over, including labor unions. Many supporters were impressed by her plan to increase transparency about not just the inner workings of government, but also its failures. Since being sworn into office, the auditor's office has released multiple reports touching on topics including services for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and Multnomah County's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, I'm really happy to be here. Trust is the foundation for democracy. Without it, people don't willingly engage with government policy. Research has shown that high levels of integrity, fairness, openness of institutions, responsiveness, and reliability are strong predictors of public trust. So, auditors are arguably the least known elected officials, but also the most important because it's your job to dig into government data and determine if there has been waste, abuse, or mismanagement of government programs. So, Jennifer, would you tell us what does the auditor do and how expansive is your reach? So... My role as the Multnomah County Auditor was created in the county charter to conduct performance audits of any county operation. What we do is look at what's happening in a government program, the good and the bad, and we talk about what's causing those particular conditions and the effect that they're having. We're particularly interested in making sure that government is accountable to the people and that operations are happening in a transparent fashion. But we also want to make sure they're as effective as possible and that they're happening in a way that's equitable, particularly for underserved communities. And so in our reports, we recommend ways to make government better so that the people across our county are being served in the best possible way and can be a part of their government to the extent that they desire. So this is an elected position. Can you tell us your story about how you decided to run and then what your experience was in running for office? Yes. So around 2016, I started to get the sense that I might need to run for office. There were some issues happening within Multnomah County, particularly within the sheriff's office, that I found disturbing. Disability Rights Oregon had published a really in-depth, disturbing uh, report about what was happening inside our jails for people who have uh, mental illnesses. And there at the same time had been a report done within the sheriff's office about use of force, particularly against people of color. And to make this 
long story as short as possible, the sheriff didn't like that report and ended up firing the people who produced it. And to me, it seemed like uh, the auditor should go in and look and see what's happening within our jails. And um, that was something that the auditor at the time chose not to do, but it spurred me to run because I felt like we need to know what's happening to our most vulnerable people in our community who are receiving government services or who are, in the case of people who are in custody, they're legally the responsibility of the county. And so uh, that led me to want to bring a focus on equity and inclusion into our work, which is happening in some other audit shops around the nation, fortunately, but at the time was kind of a new idea in auditing, I'm sort of embarrassed to say. And so those things propelled me to run. Running for office is really hard. It's kind of like another job. And so you're sort of always thinking about who do I need to be talking to? How can I explain my role? And in a race like the auditor's office, which isn't uh, the most well-known of roles, a lot of it really is just trying to educate the public about the work to hopefully get them excited enough about you and your race to vote uh, for you as auditor, or at least to vote for an auditor candidate. I'm sure that there are other ways that voters have an impact on you besides obviously voting you into office. What are those that those ways that you see voters can make decisions for you, whether you are ready for it or not? Well, I, you know, voters will call my office on a regular basis with ideas for audits. And we keep track of all of those. We have a running list of audit ideas. And if we're hearing about something from a lot of different corners, that does suggest that it's something that is of interest across the county and, and should be something we're paying attention to. We'll also just get inquiries from people not understanding exactly where something sits in county government. And so we can provide education around that and help connect people to the right places. We also uh, can get impacted by folks who want to bring something forth for the ballot. So for example, the campaign finance measures, you know, affected fundraising for the auditor or any other county office. There's a charter review committee that meets every six years and they'll start meeting this fall and they could potentially uh, recommend changes to the charter that would impact my office and people would get to vote on those across the county. There are sometimes uh, proposals for new programs and people will want to include audits in them. And so that can, on the positive side, help ensure that those programs get audited. But then on the flip side, perhaps uh, impede my ability to audit something else because I have you know, a limited access to limited resources like everyone else in government. So you have about uh, six or seven people in the office working for you? I have uh, six auditors, one hotline investigator, and an assistant. And that staff has been the same amount of people for years now, despite the growing population of Multnomah County. Yes. Since uh, 1998, I believe, we've had seven people with the auditor classification, which includes my hotline person. So, uh, yes, while programming at the county has changed, you know, since 2014, we've gotten a new joint office of homeless services. And we now have a new uh, preschool for all program that will be starting. And we have a new protected class complaints investigations unit within the county, but my office size hasn't changed to be able to provide accountability over those various services. And you're also um, just starting up a 
committee to help get some more constituents engaged. Was that an idea that you had or was it one that you saw being enacted in other areas of the country? Some other audit shops do have community advisory committees. Often they're really tied to budget. In our office, we really wanted to expand on our work to try to bring community into our function to help make sure people across the county understand the work we do and also give community members an opportunity to provide input and help shape the work we're doing. So it's a bit different than an advisory committee that would be focused purely on budget. I think this committee is focused on our programming sort of more broadly and has a lot of diverse expertise to lend to that as well as an ability to help bring community voices into our work. So could you describe for us a time when a community member's thoughts or suggestions impacted the course or outcome of your work in an important way? Yes. So uh, back in 2018, one of my colleagues and I were following up on an audit of animal services. And in a follow-up audit, you look back on the recommendations you made and see what the status is of those recommendations. But a community member also started to contact us not not related to this audit necessarily, to share information with our office about problems they saw with the lost and found portion of the animal services website. Things weren't updated. Uh, it might make it harder for people to connect with their lost pets. And so that actually uh, directly fed into improving or expanding our methodology for that follow-up audit, where we were able to really study what was happening with that website and make recommendations for improving the postings that went there. We often will start to get calls from uh, clients for a particular program or line staff in a particular program once we start auditing uh, because people really want to share what they've seen and help shape the work we're doing. And we always are really appreciative of those calls because they help us put out the most accurate sort of comprehensive report we can. We really can't do our work sitting in our offices or sitting in a corner in a, in a workspace observing what people are doing. We really co-create along the way with the folks who are involved in the program because truly the people at the county really want to see things improve. They really are passionate about their work. And I think they appreciate the opportunity to uh, share their ideas sometimes share some bad experiences they've had and, and help use those to transform into a more positive system. That makes sense. Uh, data doesn't always really describe what's really occurring because it's hard to capture those experiences people are having on the front lines when they're trying to make programs work. Exactly. Yeah, it really takes a variety of kinds of information from all the notes from interviews to that hard data to really paint an accurate picture of what's happening. So I'd like to turn to redistricting now. Back in 1964, the United States Supreme Court looked at a case called Reynolds versus Sims. And in that case, Alabama had not updated their voting districts for decades, despite large shifts in where the population lived. And this resulted in rural districts having many fewer voters in them than urban districts which effectively diluted the vote of those in the urban districts. And the court stated then that legislators represent people, not trees or acres. And from that case, we solidified the legal doctrine principle of 
one person, one vote. And so each year after the census, redistricting occurs, national level, local level. And the general idea is that districts should be comprised of roughly equal populations if possible. And you as auditor are tasked with redistricting by the Multnomah County Charter. What exactly are you redistricting at this local level? Yes, that's a great question. Um, so we have seven elected officials in Multnomah County. Three of them, myself, the chair, and the sheriff are elected on a countywide basis. So there's no redistricting that happens there. But our four commissioners are elected per district. And so uh, after the decennial census data are released, my office basically takes the full county population, divides it by four, and says, this would be our perfect number for each district to have X number of people. And then the county charter is very prescriptive and says that no district can have more than 103% of people than any other. And this really helps make sure we have one person, one vote, so that each commissioner is representing roughly the same number of people and people have the same level of access in theory to their commissioners for that reason. When I talk about redistricting, I say, at least at Multnomah County, it's really boring and we want it to be boring. We want it to be as straightforward as possible. It's like the best possible way of thinking of the word boredom because it's really straightforward. We are supposed to make sure that it's really based solely on population. We don't do anything that would be disruptive to uh, natural communities uh, in our area. We try to maintain neighborhoods as much as we can. And uh, we work closely with the elections division, who has a lot of knowledge about uh, natural breaks in uh, some of our communities where those should, should be uh, changed if we have to. So it's really, I think, kind of a very painstaking process. It's a very tedious process. But really the precursor to having good redistricting is having good census outcomes. And by that, I mean making sure we're counting everybody. And that's something that despite a pandemic, despite some really tumultuous uh, political times, the county, I think, did a great job in trying to do a complete count. Uh, Commissioner Lori Stegman, who's our commissioner for District 4, really led that effort for the county uh, and with jurisdictions of smaller and larger size within the state, as well as with all sorts of community organizations and nonprofits to really make sure we were counting as many people as possible so that then my staff can actually do accurate math and work with the GIS specialist to make sure that we are, in fact, uh, making sure people's districts are roughly the same size and that people do have that equal and fair representation. So your staff is taking data of who lives where and creating districts that may not be equal in size, but should be equal in population, right? Yes. Uh, making sure that it's the same number of people or roughly the same number of people is really the goal. The districts won't be similar shapes. Um, they'll be contiguous but uh, they won't, they're not like cookie cutter shapes. They're, they're gonna probably be odd looking, but the number of people within each should be roughly the same. But it's not just data. You mentioned that you're looking at neighborhoods and communities. And so 
some of the idea within it is not just one person, one vote, but to allow communities to be able to have a voice in who is elected. And so you have to take into account not dividing communities that uh, might have some similar interests into different districts when possible. Yes, exactly. And for that, the, you know, the Voting Rights Act is really where we get that mandate from, making sure we're not diluting anyone's voting power. Because what we're looking at is nonpartisan as well, it also really reduces any interest, certainly on my part or, or the part of anybody doing this work, in shaping districts in a particular way. Our goal really is to make things as easy as possible for people who are going to vote, uh, to know where they're, they can drop off their ballots or mail their ballots, make it as easy as possible for them to understand that I live in X neighborhood and every part of that neighborhood is in this particular commissioner's district. You know, sometimes the neighborhoods can get split between districts and as much as possible, we want to avoid those things just because we want to avoid um, any potential for confusion. And so how long do you expect that this process is going to take um, with this idea of there has been some lag with the census? You mentioned that there has been excellent data gathering in Multnomah County. So is there going to be any impact on you or do you think that this process will be the same process as usual? You'll get the map to the commission to vote on, I think it's August 1st, on time as usual. <laughs> do you think there may be some more stumbling blocks this year? You know, unfortunately, it's really out of our hands in terms of when we can get the work done. The Census Bureau has now said they will release the data by the end of September, which as you just mentioned, that's after our August 1 due date. I have alerted the Board of County Commissioners that we're gonna do everything we possibly can uh, before that August 1 due date so that as soon as we get that data, we can plug it in and hopefully be able to turn it around quickly. But this is really a case of, we can't redistrict until we have the data. We, can't, we have no control over getting the data. So we're sort of in some ways at the Census Bureau's mercy. That said, there's a lot that we can do in advance. We're working with a GIS specialist within the county to start pulling all of the, what they call shape files that show the different census tracts from early 2020. They shouldn't be that different um, in terms of what things look like once we get the data so we can at least get ahead of the game and looking at what the current maps look like. We know or we anticipate there's been population growth in East County. And so we'll probably, we already know we'll have to do some redistricting. And so we can start looking at where can we do it that would make the most sense and be the easiest understood by the public. We'll be talking with our county commissioners. There are some state programs happening around the state and uh, congressional redistricting that has to happen. And so uh, my staff and I will be attending those just to hear people's concerns, because even if they're not about Multnomah County districts, they might be very helpful to hear and can help us really do a good job with redistricting. My goal is to have the redistricting completely done and to uh, the chair and board of commissioners by the end of February. I'm hoping we can get it done sooner, but that's kind of, I think, the drop dead deadline as it were, largely because we have May primaries coming up and people probably wanna know what their district is 
and who they might be voting for to represent them in those districts. So I, I feel like we'll be get we'll get it done. It'll be an accurate job. It'll make a lot of sense. But I do wish we already had the data so that we could meet that August first deadline. Like you mentioned, it's uh it's not just about getting this job done that you're told to do by the charter. It's really about ensuring that the elections next spring um, are as fair as possible to those who are voting and need to know who they're voting for. For candidates who have to know what districts am I eligible to file for a race in? Yeah, exactly. So I appreciate that you guys are really working to try and get as much of it done early as possible so that the end is more about tweaks rather than getting all the work done um, at the very back end. Thank you. Yes, definitely. Uh, I'm hoping it'll be more an exercise in fine tuning uh, once we get the, the data from the census. And, you know, maybe they'll end up releasing it before the end of September. I think the whole nation would like them to. So <laughs> maybe, maybe that'll happen. All of the auditors will have a party <laughs> with all of the other redistricting committees across yes. the entire country. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining me today and talking to me about your role in ensuring that our government is accountable and working the way that we want it to and making sure that our elections are running smoothly and ensuring every voice is heard equally. Thank you. This is such a pleasure. This has been an episode of Voting Now, Turning Rights into Reality, a new podcast series from the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association in collaboration with the Oregon Historical Society. We focus on current and historical barriers to voting. Want to find out more? Hit subscribe to check out our episodes and visit our website, voting-now.com. Celia Howes is the lead host and executive producer. Fran Masters is our creative director. Miranda Schaefer is our producer and Gabriel Grineo is our senior editor. Special thanks to Fiona McCann.